What's up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner, and this week on the show, we got the man that can tune anything. He could tune your TV, whatever it takes. Shane Tecklenburg. Shane, what's going on? Hey, man. How are you doing, Brian? Doing good, doing good. Just uh, recently did a extended tour of uh, racing between Holly LS Fest and then right into two days of Drag Week, so I'm... Uh, recovering from that i couldn't imagine there was a couple people that actually did almost all of ls fest and then drove from kentucky to michigan to start drag week those guys are hardcore they're asking for punishment (laughs) yeah no doubt i got a I got a small taste of it we actually raced over the weekend at um at martin at the midwest drag racing series and uh and then we broke the the car that i was working on and it's based in southern california and because everyone's basically volunteer on the team, we realized there's no way we're going to be able to fix this thing and, and be in Tulsa in two weeks with the car. So our only option was drive it home. And with one guy driving, it might only be rolling in today. So I had to bite the bullet and um, get in the truck and, and drive with the other guy, swapping back and forth, you know, every few hours for the, for the 30 odd hour trip back home, which isn't normally what I do, but I had to take one for the team. And uh, so I have uh, a whole new respect for all of those guys that are running drag week and putting in that kind of an effort and working on race car, you know, for a week straight. Those guys are out of their minds. They're crazy. Hats off to them for trying to do it, but it's crazy. I would never try it. I think I want to try it, but with my car, that's not as extreme as some of those cars. And I want to make sure that I have driven this thing quite a bit that I find everything that could break rather than, two o'clock on the morning along some rural road. That's where it's not fun. So I would have no problem preparing for and tuning a car that was going to run drag week. I just personally would not get in the car myself because I just, I just, it's crazy. Look, it's, it's a, it's basically, they're all race cars and race cars break all the time, even at the racetrack and let alone driving them from one place to another. Uh, like I said, I would love to be a part of preparing for one and tuning one, but there ain't no way I'm going to be the guy in the seat driving tractor. I'll be in the I'll be in the hauler or whatever it is, sleeping and having relatively normal uh, uh, sleep time. Yeah, I'm just going to work from here. Call me if you need me. That kind of yeah, deal, right? that's the advantage of the internet. I can do it remotely. Like just I'll be in my air conditioned office. Let me know what happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because some some of those cars, it's like seeing the, the legit pro mods like Schroeder and those guys, like it takes them two and a half, three hours to get that car ready to make one hit each day because, yeah. and they're not even changing shocks. Like some of these guys do. I mean, you know, it, they put like what looked like dirt track tires, you know, on the car to make it from point A to point B. And they found out after the fact that that, you know, the, a pro mod isn't clearanced for those kind of tires. So yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff you find out on the on the fly that might be a little bit of a struggle. I mean, so, you know, with a regular pro mod car, um, you know, you're going to you're going to probably spend a season getting yourself acclimated to how to run the car and, and how to be prepared. And that's at the racetrack every time. So I suspect if you were going to try to go run a drag week, something you better plan on spending a year driving it and putting it in every situation you think you possibly might encounter to try to make sure that you have your, your, let's see, your eyes dotted and your T's crossed before you go out there and, uh, you know, and just, and just literally struggle and look like a fool. 
Oh, those guys didn't do that. They said that they didn't even make any hits with it at the track until they got up to Martin or something. And like oh, they test drove man. it on the street. I'm like, you guys are nuts. Like they said, yeah, we really didn't test with it. We just kind of, you know, put it together and brought it out. I'm like, oh, you guys are brave, braver than I, braver than I. That sounds like SEMA show prep. Yeah, you basically yeah. build a car from nothing in like three weeks before SEMA. We have all year to get it ready. The the welds are still warm when you're unloading it out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, like I said. I, that, that's I think I'm going to put that in the article. Drag Drag Week is the toughest thing you're going to do in drag racing. Period. Like I've after seeing what those guys gone through, that's just it's a different level. More. more yeah, there's no doubt. Like I, like I said, I'll do it in a street car. I will not have it turned up on kill. I've learned by watching and then actually going to one what spares to bring. There's a lot that goes into it. No doubt. Now, kind of pivoting off of that, you know, I always like when I have my guests on to kind of get a feel for where they came from and how we end up doing this because it's working in the racing industry is not something that's on your typical a checklist for a uh, high school guidance counselor. Now, your dad was actually an auto in the business, uh, you know, a shop teacher per se, a drag racer. Yep. How did that influence you into jumping into the aftermarket perform, you know, performance aftermarket as a profession? So it's interesting that you mentioned high school guidance counselor, because when I was in high school, I went to my guidance counselor and, you know, he asked what, you know, what do you want to do? And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I said, man, I think I'd like to have, you know, something to do with the racing industry or something. And he kind of like, he kind of like laughed and he goes, yeah, no, look, be serious now. Yeah, what, what do you, mean? what do you actually want to do? Like, that's never going to happen. And that wasn't my only motivation, but I can, but I have thought of that many times in the last 20 years and thought I would like to go back and just say, Oh yeah, by the way, I figured out a way to do it. But um, my, yeah. So my dad was an auto shop teacher was building uh, a 32 roadster in the garage. When I was a kid, uh, we had dirt bikes, motorcycles. He had an automotive repair shop on the side. So I was kind of destined to be involved in automotive something somehow in some way he liked uh, drag racing. When he was in college, he drag raced with Jerry Darian. They went to college together. They ended up coming out to California being shop teachers in two different high schools, but basically together. Um, and until I showed up, I think he basically had his his hand in drag racing. And then when family got in the way, if you want, and he had to, uh, you know, quit doing that stuff and take care of me and my brother and my mom. And, and so he kind of gave that part of it up. But I, but he never he never veered far away from it, always paid attention to it. And so, of course, I was interested in it from a young age. Um, and when I as I as I was growing up. Uh, I did sort of little projects here and there in his in his shop using his tools and whatever else uh, built my own go-kart and then that led to a supercharger project on that race Stratton engine which we can go on for hours about this but ultimately I ended up putting electronic fuel injection on it at about 14 years old uh, with the guidance of one of the guys that worked for my dad my dad had a company in the in the mid 80s starting in the mid 80s that did it was basically a call center for uh, automotive repair technicians and they would call in from all over the country with drivability, no start, whatever problems with computerized cars. And, and the guys that work for my dad would use a uh, computer database and just knowledge to try and help them diagnose the problem and fix it. Um, when I was old enough, um, after, after high school, I started going to college, take some general ed classes. And my dad had the opportunity to get me involved in a um, a project that he was doing with ROP. This was like 93, 94. In the early 90s in Southern California, nearly all the aerospace companies closed down and went away. 
So you had a massive pool of really intelligent people that were literally rocket scientists that had worked for Rocketdyne, Rockwell, Hughes, I mean, any big name you've ever heard in aerospace, they worked there because everybody was based in Southern California at that time. And they had closed all those plants down. So those people were available looking for new uh, ways to make a living. And uh, ROP uh, got a hold of my dad and said, we want to start a project where we help convert these guys that were from the aerospace industry into automotive technicians. They have the, the knowledge level and the skill. We just need to show them how cars work. So he had the opportunity to get me involved in that class because he was involved with it. And he offered that to me. And I said, you know, like, so maybe let's just say it was like a Tuesday. He's like, look, uh, you know, I can get you in this, in this class that we're doing, you know, with these rocket scientist guys, and we're teaching them how to be automotive technicians. It'd be a really advanced class. You'd learn kind of, you know, at the top level, like, well, you know, I don't really know if I want to have anything to do with cars. You know, I'm not really sure. He's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And then like on Thursday, he's like, tomorrow you're quitting college and you're going to this automotive class thing. Like I'm tired. <laughs> you're going to do it. So I'm glad he told me to do that because I, I started going to that class and it, you know, started out within engine fun fundamentals. I'd been around engines and, and, you know, engine theory and, you know, with an auto shop teacher for a dad, you're bound to know some stuff, which I knew, but I didn't know it at the level, the technical level that I, that I learned it at. It is, it's one, a trade school, advanced trade school. And I was surrounded by really intelligent people. Right. So I was for sure the dumbest guy in the room uh, when we were in this uh, training class. So I got to go through that. And then at the end of that, they placed you in a regular shop uh, to do, you know, to basically be an auto tech. So I, I started doing that. And then I had enough experience doing that after about six months that my dad said, you know, I could hire you now to come and answer the telephone, you know, at, at work and you can do, you know, you sell the phone and help all these guys do all these problems, diagnostic problems on the, on regular street driven cars. So uh, I'm not sure if you lost me there for a minute, but I lost oh, you. It's all good. Someone decided to call. Anyway, so I went to work for my dad's company in 94, stayed there until 2001. He sold it to Snap-on in 96. I stayed working for Snap-on until 2001 when it became so corporate that I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I took off to, uh, well, I was just going to work, work in my buddy's shop. And my dad once again stepped in and said, hey, you know, why don't you go try and do something you always wanted to do? Like, go find, like, go. So backing up a little bit, my little go-kart that had electronic fuel injection with the supercharger, which was really a smog bump on a Briggs and Stratton. Um, we were in the same business park that Motec was in. And at some point we we're running nitro in this little Briggs and Stratton engine and we didn't have enough injector. We went to Motec to get an injector. So when I was 15, 16, something like that, I got an introduction to Motec and they were generally close. And so when I quit working for my dad's company that he had sold the snap on, I went over to Motec and you know, they were looking for someone to do tuning. And I pretty much lied and said I had a lot of experience doing it. I had some experience, but not a lot. Um, and then I just showed up at every available opportunity that I could show up to to try and prove that I wanted a job. And eventually, you know, my boss, later my boss, Jim, decided this guy's going to be here all the time. We probably ought to put him to work and do something. So that was that was it. So that's how essentially you you found the uh, the performance path of the industry, right? Yeah. So I went from just regular automotive field and playing around. You know, I, look, I worked on some pro mod cars when I was um, when I was in my teens. Uh, one of the guys that worked for my dad worked with John Shelby. Uh, so when I was probably fourteen, I would go to a race here or there during the summer with them, 
Um, and, you know, at that time it was, it was pre-ProMod, but it was ProMod was coming along and it was effectively a ProMod. It's called a shoebox. Um, and then in my senior year of high school, that same guy ended up working for Kirk Coons. And Kirk was putting a 59 Corvette together to go race Super Chevy Cup in 92. And uh, we were, his, car, was, his car previously was a Thunderbird bodied car, but in order to race Super Chevy, obviously it needed to be a Chevy. So the closest way to convert it over was a 59 vet. So we basically, I, I worked for him every available weekend uh, through the end of my senior year of high school, converting that car over to a 59 Corvette, you know, new engine upgrade and all that stuff. And then uh, they hired me to, and, and my best friend from high school, Jason, um, Jason Appleby, to tow the car around the country that summer to all the super Chevy races. So I got my, toe put in the water there and kind of realized it was really cool but it wasn't a long lasting thing they were just going for that summer and uh and so but you know I, I worked on the cars occasionally if you want certainly not professionally by any means I had some experience um and when I went to work at Motec that was really where I became if you want professional although I'm not sure I'm entirely professional but but as a profession let's put it that way that's when I really started to work in the, in the racing industry. And kind of going off of that, you know, you, you find your way into the tuning side of things, which EFI tuning for, to me is crazy, scary, fascinating because it, I let other people do my stuff right now because I would very easily blow my own vehicle up. I know that. So I, I stick with what I'm good at. How did you know what do you enjoy the most about tuning cars? Why did you hyper focus in on that and kind of use that as your, your vessel to stay in the industry? Well, so first of all, like when they, they were looking for someone to come in and do tuning at Motec, they had a tuner there that had been their guy for you know since the mid 90s, George Clark. And they brought me in under George to be sort of an understudy and also to try to take some some of the load off of him. He was doing everything for every car in every series in the U S. Uh, and if it, it was something that like he was doing race support, he was going and tuning, you know, one thing about Motec, they, they use that system on lots of different kinds of cars. So, you know, any, anything from Pikes Peak to land speed, drag racing, offshore boat racing, motorcycle race. I mean, just pick a subject, anything with an engine that somebody wants to spend money for a Motec for they do. So, um, you know, he was, he was traveling all over the, all over the country, and all over, let's say, North America, if you want, doing all the tuning for anybody that was a client of Motec that needed someone to do tuning. So they brought me in as kind of like a, a backup to him to try to ease some of the, you know, some of the workload. And if you do this job or probably any job long enough and you deal with people long enough, you eventually will develop the cynical attitude that, uh, you know, you're dealing with idiots because, even though you deal with the same problem on a daily basis, you're dealing with people that haven't experienced, you know, that problem before. So every one of them will ask the same question day after day. And eventually you're thinking, what are they all dumb? But you kind of forget the fact that you had to learn that one day. Anyway, my point was George had been doing it long enough that he was already cynical and um, he was really good, but there was a little bit of a friction there. If you want that I didn't have because I was younger and new and I didn't, no, I didn't know enough to be cynical yet. I'm cynical now, but, but try not to be to the point where George was. Anyway, I pretty quickly became the number one guy because everyone wanted to deal with me. It was easier to deal with me than deal with George. So that brought me into the tuning 
let's say learning curve on an accelerated rate because I became the guy doing everything for MoTeC all over the US. So I worked on every single thing you can imagine uh, and some stuff you probably can't imagine. Um, and I had done engine tuning on my own things before, but the, the advantage of EFI is that you have, uh, particularly now with data logging and sensors, you know, before that you're really going by feel and maybe by smell and a little bit by sound. And, you know, you look at a spark plug and you're, it's a lot of guesswork. And, and so the only way to get good doing it that way is have some experience. But when you have the option to have all these sensors so you can measure what's happening on the inside, on the, on the intake side, if you want, and you can measure what's happening on the exhaust side. Well, now you can really do a, 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 a lot better job of tuning, but you can more importantly than that, what's the most interesting thing for me, I can see I'm boring you to death. Go ahead and yawn all the way. No, I'm uh, like I said, I'm, I'm still recovering from uh, the the, uh, the drag week stuff, and I'm sitting there trying to like absorb just, what you're talking about here, and it's like just go ahead and yawn. It, it makes 110% sense what you're talking about with the the sensors and be like, uh, you know, you're not licking a spark plug anymore. You're you know you're able to actually really take a educated guess instead of you know like an old wizard throwing chicken bones down, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and that's what's really exciting. And that's what, you know, engine tuning and, and, and now, you know, vehicle tuning, if you want, are, are really only, I mean, the racing is just a way to generate the interesting data that you want to look at after a run or a dyno pole or a race or whatever it is. The, the opportunity to be able to uh, analyze in, in data analysis something see a way to improvement, improve it, make that adjustment, and then not only confirm it with performance, but confirm it with data, just means you can really understand uh, what, you're, what you're working on. You know, and sometimes, look, sometimes the change you think that should be right ends up in a performance disadvantage. But eventually you learn that's okay too, because you're just building uh, a better understanding of whatever it is you're working on by, you know, taking some educated guesses, looking at some data and using the old fashioned poke it with a stick method a little bit here and there uh, to, to, right. So, so being able to have, okay, that, that was what I was, what I was getting ready to talk about. So, you know, I started there with a pretty good firm understanding of how engines worked, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And being able to work at MoTeC and have the actual data and being able to break down because it's EFI, you know, one thing working with a carburetor, a carburetor does lots of things for you that you don't know about. Um, and it's a relatively simple device, but because it measures the airflow of the engine essentially and fuels the engine based on the airflow, you, you can't, it's hard to get a complete concept of what's going on with the engine. And, and again, you got no data to go from. So you just kind of know like, look, the mixture is where it needs to be. And there's not a lot of science behind that, but there's certainly a lot of science behind making the carburetor work uh, and work correctly. But it's hard for anybody to just simply take a carburetor engine and say it runs right and understand the concepts of how the engine functions. But EFI, because of the way it works, particularly in speed density, uh, really does a good job of teaching you what part of the engine uh, is important, uh, how an engine functions and how it moves air in and out of itself. Uh, and, and then, of course, the other processes that affect how the engine works, which are basically just the physics of the air density. Uh, that the engine's working in. Um, 
So with EFI and with the ability to have sensors to measure all of those individual things that contribute to that on the intake side, and again, confirm what's going on in the exhaust side, it's extremely powerful. I mean, it's a great, great teaching tool for how an engine operates. And obviously, once you know how the engine operates, then you can see like, hey, you know, when we maybe we could do something to make a change here that would increase performance. Like, for example, if an engine runs out of its ability to breathe air, um, if you don't program it appropriately with EFI, it will it will run rich, right? Because because the EFI system is assuming that the same amount of air, for example, if we rev the engine higher than then we've tuned it. Let's say that we turn the engine 9,000, we tune it to 8,000. When we get to 9,000, the mixture goes rich. Well, obviously you can see that it's rich and make an adjustment to it and pick the power up. But the real question is, why did it go rich? Why is it richer at 9,000? Why does it take less fuel at 9,000 and 8,000? Well, the shape of the, the volumetric efficiency table in an EFI system, if it's speed density or even throttle position, tries to give you a clue. Like, hey, it, it's not moving as much air per cycle at 9,000 as it's moving at 8,000. So obviously we can correct the error in the air fuel ratio by just subtracting the additional fuel that's not needed so it runs at the correct air fuel ratio. But if we really wanna make more power, we should find a way to get it to use as much air at 9,000 as it uses at 8,000. And then, and then the amount of fuel that we're putting in will be correct because we'll have added more air. And the fact that we'll have added more air means we'll make more horsepower. So there's, it, it's a really good teaching tool if you, if you bother to listen to it, uh, you know, and that, that plays out all the way up into every kind of racing genre there is, whether it's road racing, drag racing, land speed racing, offshore racing, and every kind of engine. They all, they all subscribe to the same laws of physics. Uh, they all work the same way, and they all work the same way, whether you're at sea level or at the top of Pikes Peak. So it's a, it's a tremendous teaching tool, uh, EFI is, and I'm just super curious and interested in how engines work. And I want to make sure that the concepts that I have in my head are absolutely 100% solid. And every time I do a tuning job, it's really reinforcing my, my knowledge of, of the internal combustion engine. Now, speaking of that, we're going to take a real short commercial break here, and then we're going to talk about some of the, uh, the fun stuff you get to tune right now. So hang tight right here on the Zine Podcast. We will be right back. From ProMod to Pro Street, MSD's Pro 600 Capacitive Discharge Ignition is a game changer for cars making big power, capable of providing eight individual coil outputs with up to a whopping 680 millijoules of energy. The Pro 600 is an excellent option for racers that previously could only use a magneto. Perfect for four, six, or eight cylinder cars with high cylinder pressure, power adders, and nitromethane, the MSD Pro 600 CDI and recommended ignition coils, part number 8232, will take your engine program to the next level. All right, we're here with Shane Tecklenburg and learning about the intricacies of tuning, which, you know, you're talking about, you know, a very interesting high level way to describe EFI tuning. If you wanted to put the reader's digest version in it, because it's, I've read a couple of books on it, trying to educate myself and there's like so much you need to know. So you don't blow your own stuff up and to get the most performance out of it. Right. Yeah. So that, I mean, it's honestly, okay. So yes, if you just, if you just plug 
an EFI system in and you don't know anything about it and you go try and run your car, you're going to have a problem. But it's, it's actually not, it, it's, a, it's a bunch of simple things that add up to a very complex thing. The problem is it's not really well written or let's say that knowledge isn't really well available throughout the industry. So that's why there's guys like Ben Strader at EFI University who are teaching you know, these, these sort of concepts that, that as a tuner for 20 odd years, I, I've learned these things over time. It would have been a lot faster shortcut had that class been available when I started to jump, you know, a couple of years worth of learning ahead right from the get go. Um, but, you know, it, at the end, there's I'm still a big believer in experience, you know, and the, because the problem is that when the books, when all the when all of the um, laboratory thought processes go out the window when you're at the racetrack and you got to run in 10 minutes and what you're seeing doesn't make sense. And what are you going to do? You know, you, you don't get to just throw your hands up and go, well, this isn't possible for it to be doing this. Well, guess what? It is doing it. So what are you going to do? Go home or fix it? Um, so it, it, there's a, a bunch of experience definitely is worth is worth having, but it would it's a lot easier to understand what you're looking at if you have the basics to begin with, you know, instead of the fundamentals. And kind of going off of that, you know, you tune anything with a steering wheel and probably a lot of stuff that doesn't have a steering wheel. Right, and handlebars. Yeah, handlebars, God knows whatever other control situations. You know, looking at that and all these different things you get tuned, you know, this is about drag racing on the show. How are you able to pull from, you know, an offshore power boat, a bike or some of that stuff into the drag racing world to look at those situations that are like, might cause some people to throw their hands up where you might go, oh, wait, I've seen that before on this thing that I messed with. No, 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 that's absolutely right. So, I mean, look, because I worked at MoTeC and because they, because they work on so many different things, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just pick and say, well, I only want to work on drag race cars or I only want to work on road race cars. I didn't have a choice. I had to learn how to work on all of them. And I realized there's a lot of common things between them, but there's also some things that, um, you know, you, you learn, like you just said, that you could apply from one racing genre to another one and, and, and maybe solve a problem. So really it's just, you know, having the opportunity to experience all those different kinds of things uh, really gives you a, a huge, a huge bag of tricks to draw from when you're trying to solve a problem with any one of them. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't have the, um, I don't, let me put it this way. I was never smart enough to know that I shouldn't try something that worked in a drag race car in a sports car, or that I shouldn't try something that worked on, uh, you know, at Bonneville uh, at, at a drag strip or vice versa. I'm always like, look, this, I, I've done this before and I know it works. Let's just do it. It'll solve this problem. It may cause another problem, but it'll solve this one. It, it all goes suck, bang, crush, blow, right? You just got to figure out how to make it work in a different situation. I've been asked numerous times, like, how do you know how to work on, how do you know how to work on a Bonneville engine and tune a Bonneville engine? And you can tune a Pikes Peak engine or you can tune, uh, you know, a, a, a road race engine or a drag or, you know, how do you know how to tune a two stroke and you also know how to tune a four stroke? Well, it's because they all work the same way. They all are. They are. They're all dealing with, you know, basically the ideal gas law and, and the laws of physics. And, and they all function in the same way. But but everyone gets those blinders on. Uh, and they think, well, you know, I know I know how to do a drag race engine, but I don't know anything about doing a, you know, a land speed engine or a, or a road race engine. 
man, they're all the same, basically. I mean, yes, okay, you know, you're going to be able to put a drag race engine because it runs for a smaller amount of time. You'll be able to go closer to the edge and not damage it. But I mean, all the same principles apply. Um, so in the end, I mean, it's just applying some, some of the general concepts uh, from every kind of racing to every other kind of racing. It's for me, it's always paid dividends. And do you think that that's in the drag racing world where you see these tuners that, you know, you don't see a tuner anymore goes, oh, I just do nitrous stuff. That's it. If they're a true tuner, they mess with everything. And it seems like that they pull little bits of knowledge from a nitrous to a turbo to the different kinds of blowers. And they found ways to make this like amalgamation to make it all work in the best of those parts. Right. Right. So when I first started doing the pro nitrous car that, uh, we ran in, I don't know, maybe 2014 or 15 uh, in Bahrain for econ racing. It wasn't, I didn't want to do it. I got sort of pushed into it because they needed help with it and there was no one else available to help them. So, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured I'm just going to treat it like it's a turbo motor and do what I would work, do with a turbo. I mean, I understand that it, it, its power adder functions are different, but I'm just going to forget what's going on inside of the program that's being used now. I don't understand. So I can't, I can't help. I need to make it like what I know to be able to get the result that I want. So that that's what I did. And it ended up working out no problem. I mean, so it, particularly with nitrous, it, there is a lot of, I don't want to say it's maybe it's misinformation, but I don't know if it's misinformation on purpose. I just think it's awfully difficult to learn about those engines. Um, you know, because of the, because of the way they're being run. Um, and you, the guys that really know are the guys that are out there hauling ass like uh, Brandon Switzer, uh, you know, and they're not putting parts on all the time. So, and that's really hard to do with a nitrous car. And honestly, I don't even, I would way rather not work on a nitrous car. I mean, but if someone wants to pay me, obviously I'm going to, I'm going to do it. But, but my, my favorite would be not nitrous. It would be, you know, something boosted and preferably with turbos. Yeah, you're not about the uh, slapping a fresh rack in betweens round life, are you? No, I don't know. And you know, look, we've I've been there, but it's 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 like it feels like you can't help. You know, when you're in that situation where the thing is running itself like a fuel car, and you got to change the parts every pass, and it just feels, you have a helpless feeling because you're like, look, I, I the only thing I know how to do is back it up, and it's going to slow it down. In which case, we're not going to win. So our only choice is to go do this again, and we know the result. It's the definition of insanity right it's it's try, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result so i there was a help we were going fast but it also was it was it was hard on parts and we unfortunately didn't have the time to figure out how to make it not hard on parts um and it was so fast that it was like we'll just keep putting parts in it but it sucked as a tuner to like know yes it's probably going to hurt itself again yes it's fast but it's probably also going to be hurt you're just sending it off at the at the starting line. Well, nice seeing you, old friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bye bye. You're like cringing going. Well, oh, well, it made it. You're cringing, waiting for what what I call the expensive confetti to start coming out of the the exhaust pipes on a nitrous car, right? Right. Looks like it's got like two sets of Roman candles just shooting stuff out. You're like, what is that? It's money. That might as well be dollar bills coming out. True. Now, now they're you, hard to run nitrous cars are hard to run they're they're impressive but they are very very hard it's like uh i try to explain to people it's like in golf when you know when you've hit that ball just right because it makes that that tink noise and it's yeah. got that good feeling 
Yeah. You know that with a nitrous car. And if it doesn't make that noise, it's going to go one way or the other. And you know something's not going to happen. You don't want that to happen. That's true. Now, now, you know, again, you get to work with all kinds of cool projects in drag racing. Let's talk about some of those and kind of tell people about some of the cool projects and stories you have. Because I know you did stuff with Andy Frost, correct? That's one of the vehicles? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, you know, so Andy, um, I was... I was working. So in 2006, I started getting calls from the Middle East and I got a call from somebody that wanted me to come over there and work on some sand hill climb trucks. And uh, they, you know, were, I couldn't do it. I, in 2006, I had a contract with Christian Rado. Uh, I, so I, I quit working at Motec in 2005 because Christian Rado offered me, uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse to come and be his crew chief in NHRA Sport Compact. Uh, and so that's what I went to do 2006 and we were building a new car uh, and we had, and we were trying to go to all the races with the old car. So, uh, you know, although I had some free dates and I wanted to make sure when I went to work for Christian that I was still able to consult with some of my other like road race teams, I didn't want to cut myself off or stick myself in a pigeonhole myself into only being a sport compact drag race tuner. So I, uh, I, I we had that agreement. However, uh, because we were building a new car, I really couldn't take two weeks or three weeks or a month off to go over to the Middle East and help these guys that were calling me and telling me they wanted to do this sand hill race truck thing up a sand dune, basically drag racing up the side of a sand dune. Uh, and they had all these cars with Motec on them. They want me to come and tune them. And then, you know, they think they want me to move there. And I'm like, look, I can't, I don't have time. And they probably called me five or six times. And every time I told them no, they kept offering me more money because they just thought it was a money thing. And in the end, I told him, look, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how much money you have. I, I cannot, I can't do it for that length of time. It's not, it's not gonna be possible, you know? So that, so they, you know, the, I think the last time they called me, they said, look, we will, we will, uh, you know, fly you first class. We'll put you in a five-star hotel. We'll limo you back and forth, you know, to the shop or to the race venue, whatever. And you'll leave on Sunday and you'll come home on Sunday and we'll pay you $10,000 cash. So at that time, 10,000 was a, shit i mean it's still a lot of money but it was a shitload of money for me then uh and it was fairly impressive but once again i didn't want to break my contract with my guys here in the u.s and i told them no and i told that story uh you know to people as that year went on in 2006 and everybody looked at me like i was crazy and they're like what next time they call you an offer you you go you forget about your contract here and you just go and do it so I thought, well, you know, okay, if the opportunity presents itself. Well, so 2007, I'm at Daytona test days. Uh, I got a contract in, in 2007 with Siegel Sport. They ran a BMW uh, Daytona prototype in Grand American Road Racing Series. So we're at uh, test days at Daytona uh, leading up to the 24. And I get a phone call from, you know, one of these crazy long numbers with all these digits in it. And it's a guy over there saying, hey, look, uh, I've got a Supra that I bought from the U.S., and you tuned my street Supra a few years ago for Bullish Racing. Uh, and it's my street car, but I bought a drag race car from Bullish and we want to put an automatic transmission in it. And can you come over and, you know, can you come over and tune it? So I'm like, well, in 2007, I had a different contract. See, I had, my contract was more open and I could do it. So I said, and I remembered whatever wanted to, you know, put in my ear the whole year in 2006 about what an idiot I was for not going over there to work on the sand truck. So I just told him like, yeah, okay, well, here's the deal. You know, first class, I want a five-star hotel and, you know, it's 10,000 bucks a week and I know you're not going to do it. So talk to you later. And he's like, well, no, that sounds fine. You know, like, when can you come? Like, and then I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> now I got, uh, uh, I don't know. I have to call you back. Right. So 
I start working for Econ Racing. That was who had called me in 2007. Turns out, so I, so, so I go to Bahrain. I work on this Supra. They, they want to go in the nines. The thing goes 9-12, right? Almost in the eights. They're ecstatic. One thing I forgot to point out was that I get all the way to Bahrain to tune this. And then when I've got all the wiring done and all the setup done and everything's ready, I'm like, let's go to the dyno. Oh, the dyno's not available. Well, it's three in the morning. So I figure, okay, we'll have to go tomorrow. No, no, no. There's no dyno. There's no dyno. No, there's no dyno in Bahrain. Like you, you brought me all the way across the world to tune this car and now there's no dyno. So we ended up tuning it in the, in the parking lot at, at the Toyota dealership that uh, Econu owns in Bahrain running it back and forth, you know, across the parking lot at four in the morning and then took it to the drag strip and it went nine twelve. And like I said, they were ecstatic. No sooner do I land at LAX, I get a phone call from, and I think it's him calling. I think it's EK calling me, but it's actually the sheep. It was Colin calling me. And he's like, look, now I know you'll travel. I want you to come tune my Supra. Right. So, so that now I'm working for Alan Abbey at the same time, this is before they had all the pro mods and all that stuff. So I went over and, and worked on his Supra and, and his Supra was a car that, that came from the States and had run sevens here and they couldn't get it to run sevens there. And so the deal was, you know, if I could get it to run sevens, he was going to give me this big bonus. And lo and behold, for one time in my life, it actually worked out and it ran a seven over there. And it was the first seven second super outside the U S and I got my bonus and all that stuff. Um, but anyway, so that got me the in with Econo racing and Alan Abbey. I worked for both of them for a number of years towards the end. I only worked with Econo racing. Um, but I worked with them up until 2018. And because I was flying to the Middle East, and at that time, the only route from L.A. was through London. You know, so you'd leave L.A., go to London, uh, have like a six or an eight hour layover in London and then take a six hour flight down to the Middle East. So. Andy Frost gets a hold of me because he wants to build this street legal, you know, pro mod or whatever. And he had talked to Paul Yaw at Injector Dynamics and told Paul, I want the injectors and this is the kind of car I'm putting it in. Paul said, well, if you're doing that kind of a car, you need to talk to Shane. So Andy calls me and says, hey, I'm doing this. You know, will you help me? So, you know, sort of my normal question, are you using a MoTeC? No. Then I'm like, mm, yeah, probably not. Like, but maybe because I, I had read about Andy Frost in RPM magazine. I knew who he was and I knew what he was doing in the UK. So I was interested to try to be involved with him, help him. And, um, so I, you know, short story is I said, look, if you're serious, meet me at Heathrow. I'll be there next week, you know, on Tuesday at like six in the morning for six hours and we'll talk about it. So he showed up at Heathrow and we sat out and had over fish and chips, discussed what he wanted to do with his streetcar. And I agreed to help him. And that's sort of how that part of, uh, of the Andy Frost story, that's how it started. And we ended up over, as you know, several years, um, not only did we eclipse the original elapsed time and speed record we were trying to eclipse, that was taken back away from us when Larry built his truck. And then uh, we never were able to capitalize on the elapsed time, but through a process of other things, we ended up getting Andy's car to go to Bahrain, uh, where the track was good and there's no rain, more importantly, like there is in England. Uh, and we were able to become the fastest street legal pro mod at 263 miles an hour and eventually running the fives. So... It was a long story and a long process, but that's how it worked. That is a really awesome story because it, it, it talks, it, it shows what it's like, what people may not know what goes on. I'll say behind the scenes and how some of these deals come about and like 
the traveling that some people do within the industry and like how it actually works, especially over in the Middle East. It's it's a whole different universe over there, man. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, all all the guys that are bringing people over there have are, are well off. Let's put it that way. Uh, and and they think on a different level uh, than than people over here think to be because of the fact that they have maybe not unlimited resources, but compared to most people, pretty much unlimited resources. It's a different thought process at that point, because it's, you know, like some people will have certain hobbies where they want to be the best at it. And these guys, their hobbies, I just want the baddest drag car ever. And I'm just going to, what's it going to take? I don't care. All right, go get, get, go get those parts. Here's the American express black car. Just make it happen. It's hard to believe when people are, because you know, look, a lot of people talk about a lot of stuff. They're usually full of shit. Um, and stuff doesn't come true. Cage told me, I mean, early, early, uh, maybe, maybe when I was there working on his Supra, he's like, look, we're going to have, you know, pro mod team over here and we're going to have, you know, all this stuff over here. And, you know, you could come over here and tune it all and you could all just, you know, you just move here. And I'm like, well, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> sure. You're going to have a pro mod team. And, you know, like maybe a year later, I'm flying to the Middle East and Shannon Jenkins is, is sitting in front of me on the plane. And I'm like, I guess he really is going to have a pro mod team. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, re- I mean, every step of the process for Alan Abi was like, Hey, we're going to next thing, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, Hey, I'm going to have a top fuel and funny car team next year, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, sure. We both will. Right. He's like, no, I'm going to hire Alan Johnson. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. You're going to hire Alan Johnson away from uh, Schumacher. Sure. He's like, what, you don't think I can, you don't think I can hire him away from Schumacher. I'm like, man, I don't, maybe, I don't know. He's like, you don't think I can just offer him more money? He'll come work for me. I'm like, you know what, Colin? I've started to learn with you that, that I need to stop thinking that, that anything is impossible because you can make anything happen. If you told me tomorrow that you're going to buy the space shuttle, I believe you probably could pull it off. So, yeah. yeah. And then when he, when he, when they made the announcement before or right after Indy that year that they were going to, uh, Alan Abi was going to have a top fuel and funny car team. He just, he sent me the link with just, and it just underneath it just said, ha, 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 ha. It's like, yeah, you're right, dude. You're right. Sorry. I doubted you. Now for, for someone in your line of work is the same time. That's got to be like almost as exciting as Christmas day, because you're going to get some fun stuff to play with and probably have had over the years. Right. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, obviously look, I, I was, a I was a total fan of drag racing, uh, you know, growing up, I went to every, day of racing at Pomona for the NHRA world finals and winter nationals. I took days off school. I mean, we would always during the winter nationals, I think we would have finals. So I would take finals in the morning and drive out to the track in the afternoon. And then uh, for the world finals, I would just flat take Thursday and Friday off and go to every race. I wanted to be involved with drag racing some way, somehow. Um, And obviously looked up to all of the people and still do uh, that were, you know, the leaders in the sport. And Alan Johnson was certainly at the top of my list for somebody that I had like the most and still do again, the most, you know, highest respect for uh, somebody that was extremely knowledgeable and someone I would like to pattern myself after or be like, right. And, um, you know, through the KH thing that, so part of the deal was there's a hill climb, the hill climb thing that that's really kind of their big motorsport in the Middle East. And they basically go run up a sand dune and it's for time. You don't run side by side, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's an elapsed, it's a drag race up, up a sand dune with, and they have all sorts of different rules, but, but the rules are kind of what were they were wide open. So at that time you could have a six cylinder and it did not matter what the displacement was. If it was six cylinders, it fit the six cylinder class, you know? So I kind of said like, 
why don't we get somebody like Brad Anderson or somebody to build us at like, you know, a V8, but a six cylinder version, like 500 inches, because, you know, they, they expect that you're going to use something that actually came from a factory with a six cylinder engine in it. But there's no rule that says you can't. It's just got to be six cylinders. And since we kind of don't really have a budget limiting us to like, why don't we just get something way massive? So that eventually turned into a V6 that Alan Johnson built. It was a 90 degree odd fire V6. Um, and it was 600 inches. And we did a little bit of development at first with that on the dyno. But the point of this part of the story is that I got to like, go sit with Alan Johnson and KH and Beverly Hills before the Winter Nationals and talk about this six cylinder and like meet Alan Johnson and talk to him and like have some connection with him you know, on, on this engine, it was like the most exciting thing in the history of mankind to be able to do that, at least for me, from where I came, you know, being a fan, I obviously I worked with lots of people, but, um, you know what, look on the same, on, on the same kind of token, like when I, when I went to, I went to Denver, my grandmother, grandfather passed away in like maybe 2003, probably 2003 or maybe 2002. So my uncle lives like a mile from Bandemir. And it just so happened we were there for the funeral and the wake at my uncle's house while the Mile High Nationals are going on. So we're sitting on the patio and we can hear the echo of them running fuel cars. And I'm like looking at my dad and he's looking at me and I'm looking around and, and finally I'm like, I'm going to the track. Who's going? So we all went. And, uh, and Vance and Hines was there at that time running this Harley uh, that they were trying to do. Uh, and I happened to walk around and look at the system they were trying to run at the time. I saw it and I went up to Byron and said, Hey, I work for a company that does, you know, EFI systems and they work really well. And, you know, maybe might be able to help you with some of the problems you're having said, you know what, I'll talk to you at the world finals. And he did. And they eventually started running MoTeC. And then that was when they first started qualifying with the Harley and, and you know, the next year. And then they actually won the championship the year after that. But um, it was being able to hang out with Matt Hines and Byron Hines and Terry Vance and like go to dinner with them. And I'm like pinching myself and we're, you know, it's, it's absolutely the highlight of any drag race person's life would be to just like be in the restaurant at the same time with some of these people. And I'm literally sitting down having dinner with them and we're, and I'm, and they're engaging me in conversation. So it is just super exciting and like absolutely a bonus. And I'll never forget it. Met some of the most amazing people in racing and, and then came to realize you know what? They're really just people. I know it's stupid and it's cliche, but I mean, it really is like at the end of the day, if you, if you can swallow your excitement and wanting to like scream and Hey, can I get a selfie? If you can pull that back and just start acting a little more normal, they of course act normal. And then it's just like, they're just people. They're cool. And honestly, like I'm friends with, with all those guys still. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really good. It's been really good. It makes the, it, it changes how you look at the industry, right? And what you do. Yeah, totally. Now we're going to take another quick commercial break. When we come back. We'll have more. Here's Shane Tecklenburg on the Dragzine podcast. Racers building big block Chevy engines with the newest generation 20 degree valve angle cylinder heads can rely on JE's new 20 degree series pistons to get custom features with off the shelf convenience. They're available in both naturally aspirated or nitrous oxide applications in a variety of bore sizes. Check them out at jepistons.com. All right, we're back here with Shane Tecklenburg talking about all kinds of fun stuff, building giant monstrous six 
cylinder engines that bend and break the rules, which ironically enough, I'm pretty sure is that the same engine that was in a vet at some point that kind of got a uh, kind of got thrown out outlaw 10.5. Yeah, that it eventually, yeah, it was the same one. It was it was bigger at first and they destroked it. I think it went, it kind of got sidelined. It didn't quite run right. I mean, part of it by the time by the time I got to talk to Alan about it, it was already going to be a 90 degree V6, which I know 90, you can't have a 90 degree V in six cylinders and come up with an even firing pattern, right? It has to be odd fire. Uh, so if you, if the, the, the V angle could be something divisible by 60, then it would be an even fire. So I was hoping it was going to be a 60, but basically they already had it designed and drawn up. Uh, and they were taking one of their uh, V8s of some sort and basically just lopping two cylinders off of it, which meant it was 90 degree. It was a lot less, obviously, engineering and development time on their end to do that. But it was odd fire, which means it shakes like crazy um, at, certain, at certain frequencies. So we struggled with it initially, and it kind of got pushed to the side. And then it got resurrected in the end uh, and went to Proline and they changed the stroke and they did lots of different things to it to make it a, a, a raceable combination. And they ran it in that Corvette that Mo drove that, you know, basically, yes, was set in the 10, five records left, right, and center. Um, and, and I, I wasn't involved with it then, but, um, yeah, it was great to see the thing actually, you know, be used for something other than, other than just kind of a conversation piece. Yeah, that, that was a really cool deal. And it was very interesting to see how quickly that loophole got closed in the rules before, probably before, you know, imagine how that would have changed history. Yeah. I would have been building, you know, these gnarly V6s. It would have taken us in a different direction, but it was very interesting to see that happen and kind of the development side of it for sure. Yeah, no, it was cool. And it was, you know, it just goes to show, like I was talking earlier about the resources and it's hard to comprehend the resources available. You know, no one else was going to do that because only college could could build something and, and invest the time and have the connection with Alan Johnson to make that happen. Uh, and, and then actually not really use it and, and, and have it not really, you know, affect affect what else he was doing. Seriously so surprised we never saw those engines pop up in Comp Eliminator more. Like really, really surprised. I think if they hadn't been so difficult to keep from falling apart. Uh, because of the vibration and other problems, I think that you certainly would have. And, you know, I mean, I, like they would have been a great import engine, right? Because, I mean, you probably put that engine in and run 20 pounds of boost on it and run it for five years and not break it versus, you know, the running at the edge with a 2J. Yeah, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to World Cup this year. and I love going to that event. And it's, I always tell people it's, it's a different, it's an event but it's a different kind of event you've ever been to because you're going to see some of the best imports ever. You're going to see people break things you've never seen broken. And you're going to see guys hot swap rotaries and just basically put one in, pull one out, rebuild it, and just lather, rinse, repeat. They'll have like a little two-engine turnaround because those things, you know, they ain't here for a long time, but they're here for a good time. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you know, kind of going off the whole development side of thing, the unlimited budget deal, you know, I've seen some videos where you explain how different parts work. Like I think one was on like a converter drive and stuff like that. And kind of tying that into a tuner, how does that help you become one of the best tuners in the world, essentially, when you understand, you know, is it really help understand the function of how everything works inside the vehicle to tie it all together to make all that power? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, 
So first of all, I didn't want to know any of it. I just wanted to know the engine. But the problem is, in a, particularly in, say, a drag race car, or any car for that matter, you can't do your job tuning the engine if the car doesn't work or the car doesn't go down the racetrack. And most of the reason why the car doesn't go down the racetrack is not related to the engine. So, you know, you, you either are going to go nowhere or you have to start figuring out, okay, well, we need to figure out why this doesn't work or how to do a better job with this part or that part. And so it just, you just sort of automatically have to learn the rest of it. And I would say that I might be able to be considered expert on the engine management side of it. I'm probably not an expert at the rest of it, but if you do it long enough, you know, you get pretty good at it. So you know, again, I'm not an expert, but I've done it for 20 odd years. I'm, I'm less stupid than I was when I started. Let's put it that way. So um, the converter drive stuff, like it's, it's just part of the same thing. Like, look, the converter doesn't do what I expect. And I can't get anyone to explain it to me in a way that I can understand. So I better take it apart and see if I can figure it out myself. And, you know, I, I couldn't right away. I st I'm still not, like, once again, I probably still don't have the theory correct, but I know enough cause and effect now. And because I put my hands on it, I understand how the parts are supposed to function. Uh, and so that just, that just helps. So, you know, when you're dealing with a high powered drag race car, you're not usually tuning the engine at the drag strip uh, as far as, you know, what does it want for timing and mixture for power? Usually what you're doing is power managing. So what you're doing is you have more power than you can get through the tires, and, and particularly at the beginning of the run. And you're trying to match the absolute amount of power that the tire can get on the ground with what you're generating. Uh, and so your power management strategy may start with the engine. And obviously EFI makes that easier because you can control what the engine produces easy. But it might also tie into when you turn on, you know, particular uh, pressure relief valves for the converter to change how much drive it has or a lockup if you've got a, a converter with a lockup clutch and or a shift point and or, you know, rear suspension settings on the shocks or even the four link bar angle, uh, front shocks, uh, strut, uh, how fast they come out, the ride height in the front, ride height in the rear. I mean, all, when you start getting quick and particularly when you're racing other people that are, that are quick, all of those things get very, very critical. Um, and geez, like anything you try to run in the fives, it pretty much needs everything to be right or it's not going to, it won't, it won't make it either won't make it down the track or you're not going to run the number you want to run. So all of these things come, become important. I got the opportunity through econ racing to work with some of the best in the business at all of those different kinds of jobs. So, and you know, we, we had a group over there, uh, guys like Jamie Miller, uh, who's absolutely fantastic on the chassis side of it and power management side of it. Um, Tim Davis, who's just an, an amazing car chief, uh, Mikey Reese, who was a car chief under Steve Petty for, um, Troy Coughlin's, you know, multi-championship winning NHRA pro mod team. Uh, we had guys like that of that caliber working on our team and we were working on cars together. And we had the unique situation that most teams don't have where none of us brought our egos to the table. Everyone realized that, uh, that's, that they were an expert in their field, but there was someone there that was an even greater expert in another field. And so even though we all sort of had a general concept, we were all open-minded enough to work together to try to make each other better and make the whole team better. And so that paid dividends in our success and you know a lot of the records that we set. 
But what it really did was, was give all of us an unbelievable education into the mind and thought processes of another export expert on another piece of the race car. So, I mean, I know from myself, like I learned a ton from Jamie and from Mikey and from Tim about how to race, you know, how to set up the chassis uh, and, and how to, how to like from Mikey, especially how to win um, because winning takes something different than just going and making record runs. You know, when you're thinking about how do I make consecutive runs and if something needs to change, how do I not shoot myself in the foot when I'm changing something? And the process processes that they had developed on, on Coughlin's car, uh, you know, we, I use them on every team I work with today because they, it just makes sense. And you, you can't understand that until you go to try to race at that level. And particularly you start going rounds and winning, uh, you, you'll never, if you don't have that experience, you'll never figure out the right process to do it. Well, and I think that drives home the point too, especially if you said in something like really five second fast, like legit fast stuff is that all the horsepower in the world does, you no good. If everything behind that flat flywheel isn't doing its job, you have to know how to make it all work and have to figure out how to get the power to the ground. And we're making all the power. It's getting the ground. Well, now the car's shooting to the left. Why is it doing that? And it's like, it's this constant cycle of, uh, I guess the way I look at it is there's no such thing as a perfect setup or a perfect tune. That's what you're always chasing, isn't it? Yeah. No matter, even when you make a great run, you can see where you can pick and, you know, find a place to get something better. You know, it, for me, it's more exciting. Like when I, when I worked with elite motorsports in, in NHRA pro mod, because the NHRA pro mod rules limit the boost to like at that time it's 36 pounds. Now it's 33 pounds. Your, your power limited from probably the 330 to the finish line most of the time. That's not nearly as fun for me, or maybe just for me because I'm used to racing cars with turbos. Um, it's not that much fun because you can't do anything after that point. Like once you've, once you've managed the tire and you're, let's call it all in on power, it's, there's nothing to do but watch it go down the rest of the racetrack. I mean, it's like, it's like pro stock. I mean, not, not, not that there's anything wrong with pro stock. It's just, but I mean, when there's no, when you can't, when you, when you can't be excited by like, wait till they see what the scoreboard reads this time, because I cranked the boost up more or whatever it is. It, it's, it's like, uh, yeah. And it's, it's just going to run that section between the three thirty and the finish line the same every time, unless something happens and there's nothing you can do after it. it it's, it's like, you're always kind of hunting, like, I guess a, a good, what a good way to describe it would be that you'll take a run and you'll find the best parts and then you'll try to find, like you said, you'll find a way to poke it, poke it with a stick a little bit and other parts. So you're always finding spots. Well, I could do this better here and this better here. And that's why you're always trying to find like that balance and adjustments. Yeah. I mean, look, it, so the thing about like running NHRA or something where it's power limited, it just, those, the, the gains are so small. That, it, that even when you find a spot, you're like, oh, we could do something better here. And it's good for maybe it's good for a hundredth. And you're like, I need, I want it to be good for like a tenth. I'm excited. I, you know, it's just, look, it's just like running things on the dyno. You run something on the dyno and you work all day and you gain three horsepower. And it's not that exciting. It's much more exciting to put something on the dyno in the morning that makes 900 horsepower. And at the end of the day, makes 3000 horsepower. Yeah. You know, cause you can make massive gains and that's just flat more exciting. Um, and, you know, with an unlimited style turbo car, 
Yeah, I mean, eventually you get a good enough track that you can lay everything out. And, and But by the way, it'll do some amazing, it'll put some amazing number up on the board, like, you know, 274 or five miles an hour, or 278 miles an hour, you know, and run 540s, which is, you know, I mean, it, that's pretty, that's pretty stunning that a door car will run that quick. And then they'll Ter- probably terrifying. go quicker if you get the chance to, to poke at it long enough. But, but those are pretty amazing numbers, really. Speaking of that, you know, have you ever really messed with anything nitro related? Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I was a kid, my little go-kart thing was nitro, but I didn't really know what I was doing then. And, um, so recently I had two projects. Uh, one of them is in the middle East. It's a same thing, Sandhill truck. Um, and they have an inline six, either Nissan or Toyota. I can't remember. There's so Nissan and Toyota in their land cruiser and Nissan patrol, which is like a land cruiser. They make an inline six that's like about four and a half liters. One's four five and one's like 4.8, I think. Um, so they're basically the same kind of engines. Uh, and, and so he's running a normally aspirated class. Uh, and it's basically, you have to run a, it. There is a displacement limit, but I don't know what it is. But you can't, you don't get to run college V6 in that class. It has to be an inline, it has to be a factory block. Um, but anyway, yeah, to try to make more power, he's like, man, I want to run nitro. What do you think? Like, ooh, that sounds scary, but okay, let's try it. Yeah. So, he wants to run 50%. And I'm like, man, like we should, maybe we should try with something less than 50. But in the end, there's a little, there's a communication struggle working with guys in the Middle East. Um, and, and so I thought to myself, I can either tell this guy how to try to mix nitro at some percentage, and then we put it in and I see what happens. Or I can just tell him to pour the drum in straight out of the 50-50 drum. And then I at least know I'm getting what I expect. So we did. So I went straight from zero to 50%. And honestly, we didn't have that many problems. We gained about, I think, about 30, 38% more power than methanol. Um, it took, like I think, about 50% more fuel volume. Uh, and it needed a little, like 11% more ignition advance. But we ran it right there on the dyno and he was choking and coughing and he was like, I'm like, okay, make another pull. He's like, man, I can't, I can't breathe. I said, okay, take a breather and then, and then make another pull because I'm ready again. Um, yeah. And so it ended up being not really that big of a deal. And then he went and ran it at his, at his event and it managed to not scatter itself. So that was good. I don't think he won, but you know, it, it, it did whatever it did. So, so that's my, my one and only real full experience with nitro my other one is i got a nitro harley guy this year that runs bonneville and we uh are working on trying to get that thing converted over we got it converted to efi but i wanted to dyno it uh and we went and ran it on the dyno and alcohol and we're supposed to go back and run it on nitro which we haven't done meanwhile he took it to um el mirage like i don't know last week and it didn't run right for whatever reason with nitro in it so we have some some problems to solve there yet but yeah i got to play with nitro a little bit well, the, the, the thought process or the way I was going with that is Nitro, talking about fast door cars, Scott Palmer's got Studzilla. What if you were given the opportunity to play with something like that? That's like next level crazy to me. So probably if anyone was crazy enough to let me play with one, it would be Palmer. Yo, and, yeah, yeah. and let me start off by saying that Palmer's idea with that car it is so, and he, and he, his thought process is right on. In the end, people are excited by watching a nitro car belch flames out of the exhaust, uh, you know, smell like a fuel car and make all kinds of noise. 
and, and, and almost what it, and particularly that car, it's a spectacle. The car's a spectacle. The fact that it doesn't make full runs down the racetrack and isn't the quickest door car in the world, it really doesn't matter. I mean, for most people, that doesn't make any difference. And I told Scott, I'm like, look, you know what? You should just tell everybody to turn the scoreboards off. No, because no one could tell. If the car goes down the racetrack, they're not going to know what it runs. And if it shows a, a number that's not quick, it detracts from the show. I mean, that car and, and the cars like it are about the show. Now, if they ever get a hold of the ground and go all the way, there is no question they're going to be the new record holder for doors. Uh, and and it, it would be great to see, and I'd love to see it happen. I love watching the car. I love Palmer. I love his ideas. I think he's spot on. It is all about the fans in the end of the day. Uh, and, and, and more people in, that are higher ups in the associations where we all race should consider the fact that the people in the grandstands are paying the bills and, and do something exciting uh, that they enjoy. And Palmer is all about that. And that's why they continue to whack the throttle in between, you know, in between rounds with a top fuel car. And, and honestly, seeing him partner up with, with Alex Laughlin, like I'm not sure there could be a better combination uh, between Laughlin and Palmer. I mean, that's just like, that's like the, the epitome of the fans delight and keeping in mind that, Palmer, at one point in his life, sat in the grandstands and watched race cars and was inspired by them and decided he was going to go try to throw his hat in the ring and become a top fuel racer. So it's uh, they're a great group of people. I hope they have success. I would love to play with one. I would not want to play with it the way they're trying to do it with their traditional you know, fuel system and stuff that they have to use. I would want to try to use more of the stuff I think might work. I might be wrong, but I would only want to try it with the, with the tools I know how to use. Let's put it that way. I just want to see the look in Glendora when on someone's face, when the first pro mod door car goes 300 miles an hour and like Palmer's just giggling and like someone in NHRA headquarters literally has an aneurysm. Like they, they just, they don't want that to happen ever. So, so here's what happens. Like I go to, I go to, he was at great bend and he had just run the car at a couple of races and, and I asked him like, okay, you know, what's it like compared to the top fuel car? He's like, man, the fuel car is nothing. I sit in and I can see everything. This thing I get in it, I can't see shit. Like there's a blower in my way. I just door, you know, doors and there's pillars and stuff in my way. It's dark. I hit the throttle. I am in a cocoon of flame because I'm sitting back where the headers are next to the door. So it's just flame up next to me. And he's like, I'm sitting on the starting line, waiting for the tree to come down. I'm thinking, I'm such an idiot for doing this. But here's the thing. When you ask Palmer about that, you know, typically when you ask the drivers these days, because of course they're trying to do the corporate America thing and they're trying to mention sponsors and all that stuff. They don't come out with the true feeling of what it's like, of what someone wants to hear that's sitting in the stands. And Palmer does. He comes across. I just love that guy. So he's great. You should interview him next. I've had him on the show. Would love to bring him back on, especially after he, uh, at one of those funny car chaos events or whatever, I think he put a fan in the car and started doing throttle whaps on the starting line. Like, yeah, I mean, who, who does that? He, he is right. He is crazy. He's great. I, I just love the guy though. He's just great. He's the best thing for the sport. Honestly, he just, I wish there was more guys out there like, like him. He's a showman. He's know? totally a showman. He gets what he's out there to do. You know I mean? He knows he's not running for the, for the NHRA championship. And he knows how exciting it was when he was, you know, watching the races to have him whack the throttle. And so he's like, I don't care. We're whacking the throttle. Yeah. It's happening. Oh, Alexa got me at Norwalk. Like I'm in there, you know, 
taking some pictures of a warm-up and it's so rare these days for someone to do it. You don't expect it. All of a sudden they just did a quick lap. It's like, yeah, I chilled. I'm like, all right, well, that was cool. Wasn't expecting it. They're all giggling at me. I'm like, y'all got me. Cause I, I, I wasn't ready for that, but it was fun. Made everybody it even gets you sometimes when you are ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that, that's the thing about nitro vehicles is that it's just, it's such a sensory overload. Like if you think a screw blown, zoomies pro mod is loud yeah it's a certain level loud but it's not the volume of a nitro car like the sensory explosion of it right and the feeling in your chest when it comes by so when we used to sit at about a thousand feet top of the grandstands in pomona that was where the group that i went to the races with would always sit and there was this deaf guy that would come every year and he could some what somebody at some point in the group could could do sign language they signed with him and they're like hey you know can you can you hear this? He says, no, I can't hear it, but I can feel it. And I come here because it's the only thing that I can go to where I feel like I can still hear. Yeah. So it's perfect. Yeah. You can be deaf and it still is impressive. Well, Shane, our time here is coming to an end. And I like to give my guests, I like to throw them some fun questions. And, and for okay. you, you know, it's, it's not, we're going to make it a time machine question. You know, if you could tune any vehicle, drag racing, past or present, that you don't already tune or haven't had hands on already, which vehicle would you like to just be able to either pluck out of history or even now have a part in trying to do something with? So it has to be a car that existed already? Yeah. I would love the chance to run the Lexus. Econo Lexus that we raced over in Bahrain. I would love the opportunity to race with the same team here in the U S and, and in, in whatever class, whether it's NHRA pro mod, PDRA Midwest pro mod, because I think we would potentially uh, be unbeatable. Right on. That makes that the, the one that was a small tire car came over here and uh, kind of wrecked LDR for a hot minute, got some people upset because that was a nasty car. That was the same group of people that uh, worked on that car. Uh, and so having the, look, I, you get with, when you work in the industry long enough, you, you run across, across a lot of good people. Um, but there are still some, a few that stand out over everybody else. And those guys over there in the Middle East, um, like I said, Jamie Miller, Tim Davis, uh, Mikey Reese, Eric Luzinski, uh, you, you know, these, these are people who are absolutely experts in the field that they're in. And then, of course, everybody has some cover-up knowledge of the other things. But those guys, I, I, I'm telling you, I don't know that there's anybody better. I, I think it would be an unbeatable team. I think, I wish we would have had the chance to come over here and do it. We didn't, but I would love to be able to have that opportunity. Get so next ba- question. Get the band back together, right? Yeah, put the band back together. Exactly. Well, I mean, that, that's my last question I got for you at this point. You know, I'll just, you know, it, it's your time to shine here. I'll let you thank who you need to thank. Tell people where you can learn more about what you got going on, sponsors, whatever you got. So, uh, you know, it's, it's your time to impersonate John Force and thank everybody you need to thank. Right. Well, I'm not going to bother trying to impersonate John Force. There's only one John Force, and there's no way I could do a better job at being John Force than he can. But uh, obviously, I need to thank my family, my mom and dad. Uh, for their support. My wife, Heidi, my daughter, Bella, who put up with me being gone like, you know, crazy amount of time out of the year to be able to, to be able to live this dream and, and have this kind of a, 
have this kind of job. I am eternally thankful for the opportunity to be able to make a living working on race cars. It is a thousand times better, even on its worst day, than a real job. And I've had a real job, so I know what it's like to have a real job. And I'm, again, eternally grateful to not have to have a real job. I'm probably unhirable at this point, uh, having my freedom for this long. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm very thankful to have the opportunity. Um, you, you know, some, some people recently have given me some good opportunity. Daryl Hubbard, who owns the DBRD racing team, saw something in me years back and has let me pretty much have free reign of his race team at this point. We run Midwest Pro Mod with that. I really want to thank him and my friends, Ed Thornton, um, Doug Stewart, um, uh, Tom Esbury. And these are guys that I've raced with since 2003, starting back in the PSCA days. Uh, and, and, and obviously, uh, you know, everyone at Motec who's supported me for a long, uh, a long time, 20 years, even after I've only worked there for five years and they're, they're as much my friends and as supportive now as I, as they were when I, when I left in 2005. Uh, and you know, look, there's a lot of other people that have contributed, uh, people when I was younger that really inspired me guys like Dave Belliver, who worked for my dad and Jeff Ellis, who helped me figure out the electronic fuel injection thing when I was, when I was younger and Kurt Moore, who took me, you know, to the races and, and, and introduced me to John Shelby and to Kirk Coons. And, you know, all those guys sort of took me under their wing as a, almost a little brother uh, and, and helped me learn and pushed me in the direction uh, that I went. Uh, so, you know, with that, I'll just, I'll just close it off and, and, uh, and say, you can reach me on the internet uh, via telephone, uh, Shane tech at yahoo.com, uh, tuned by Shane uh, tuned by Shane T on Instagram, Facebook, all of those sorts of, uh, uh the new, the new, the new methods for communicating with people. The new um, avenues, right? but yeah, yeah, that's all I got. Well, Shane, it was awesome to have you show. And I got to thank my sponsors, of course, Performance Distributors, Airflow Research, Procharger, Holly, MSD, Flowmaster, Mosier Engineering, Comp Cams, Fuel Aero Spark Technology, Elderbrock, Manly, JE Pistons, and Dart. All give me the opportunity to come on here and to talk to people like you and have fun so our viewers and listeners can listen to us tell incomprehensible stories about the stupid things that we do and enjoy, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I always tell people, I'm like, these are the sanitized stories. There's a lot of stories out there that I have been witness to that I could never repeat for fear of incrimination or potential death. Yeah. Well, you said it's the PG 13 version. So I left out all the juicy details. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of stuff where it's like, you got it. Sometimes you got to get creative and leave out certain points. And I've had people come out and say, well, that's not really a hundred percent what happened. I'm like, yeah, if I told the real story, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. And there'd probably be at least two people that would get fired because of what actually <laughs> happened. So we're just going to leave that little portion out and just roll with it. But man, it was awesome to have you on the show and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you at the track soon, man. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Brian. Appreciate what you do. It's very important to the industry being able to get these sort of uh, anecdotal stories out to people so that they can be inspired the next generation if you want, or they can find out that their heroes aren't really the heroes they should be. But either way, <laughs> Thank you for what you do. We appreciate you. It takes all of us to make the industry work. Thanks a lot. We're just degenerates that have horsepower fiend, right? That's right. See you soon, man. Take care.